I will never tell them what people told me, that you will never be successful and you'll never be successful in Memphis. I will never tell somebody that, never. I will share with them that it's very difficult, it's very challenging, and, and, and by the same token, if you execute your plan and people accept what you are doing, whatever it might be, then you can be very, very successful. But there's gonna be some hard knocks. It does not come without hard knocks. I bet if you talk to Fred Smith about FedEx, the early days of FedEx, I'm sure he got some some stories that you wouldn't believe, you know, how big worldwide FedEx has become to where he got started. So it's always a bump in the road, but you just have to be uh, again, to be patient and execute your plan as best you can. And then when, when there's an obstacle, then make adjustments. This is Sam. Welcome to the show. I'm glad you're listening to this week's episode. Please check out the other episodes already recorded at podcast.sampcoats.com or on your app. Memphis Voices, Navigating the Unexpected. If you like the show, please leave a review, share it with your friends, and also subscribe to it. This really does help get the podcast out. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Uh, my first day on the job with Isaac was on the plane going into Los Angeles. So it looks somewhat glamorous now, <laughs> but, but, you know, Back, you know, back then, you know, you were just trying to find your way. So you're saying, I mean, I'm repeating what you said. It looks glamorous now, and you can see how things played out, you know, 50 years, 40, 50 years later. But at the time, it didn't seem or feel that it was just following this clean order, one box after the next. Well, again, that's part of the life that I, I, I tell people, especially young people, you know, you don't know sometime where you're going to end up. I never knew I was going to end up at Union Planners Bank. I never knew I was going to end up at the branch that business with Stacks Records. I never knew that I was going to end up working for Isaac Hayes at that time, which Shaft was one of the biggest records and the biggest happenings in the world that I was going to be a part of that. So obviously I was prepared because I was able to go the next step each time. And the next step prepared me for the next step, prepared me for the next step. That's something that I tried to pass on to as many people as I can when I'm talking to them. You know, just just be prepared and whenever that opportunity opened up, be able to take advantage of it. That is great. What was it like flying out to L.A.? And as you mentioned, Shaft came out in 1971, so I guess that was why the big tour was starting. Were you nervous about taking on that job? So how did you feel about that opportunity since, you know, that was a stretch from a career standpoint? And then my second question is, what were those years like being his tour manager for Isaac Hayes in 1971? Can you talk about that as well? It was a tremendous opportunity and and not knowing, I mean, let's think about it. A Southern guy, a boy from Memphis, Tennessee, and Isaac and I used to always talk about this. Here we are from Memphis. We are in Hollywood and Rodeo Drive and Sunset Boulevard and movie stars and 
limousines and palm trees and swimming pools. I, I mean, it was it was it was it was it was phenomenal, and you just kind of had to pinch yourself that all of this was going on, and and that, and that especially after we got into the campaign for the Academy Award, you know, you meet everybody because Isaac was a big star. I mean, he was a really big star. To be a fortunate enough to be a part of that, it, it was great. Now, I had no experience other than counting money. It kind of in a control situation at the bank when you go in and audit and you had to count all the money and verify all of this and reconcile all of this stuff in a controlled environment. And then now I had to go and learn how to do a manifest for a building, a manifest for your information. Each building has a has kind of a roadmap of what the facility and the tickets and the prices and all that stuff. And you had to learn all that stuff and learn it in, in pretty fast order. You know, I had nothing to, we just had to find our way in terms of what actually happened. We had to find our way and we were fortunate enough to have people that we were interacting with that gave us some guidance. I was, listen, I was reading something about Elton John Elton John's manager, he's had the same manager for over 50 years. His name is Howard Rose. Well, Howard Rose was one of the agents for Isaac, and he helped me to understand how the, the touring, accounting, and all of that. I learned that from Howard uh, or his team. So when I was reading a story about Elton John, I remember them showing me all the pictures of this young guy from England named Elton John. And when I'm looking back 50 years now, which I've been in this business over 50 years, you know, you were right in the middle of, of something phenomenal and that you didn't know was, was phenomenal. I mean, Howard Rowe was just an agent. I was, I was trying to find my way. He was trying to help me find my way, trying to help Isaac be a big star and travel and touring and all that stuff. And we learned on the fly. None of us had experience. I mean, think about it. We all from Memphis, Tennessee. We, you know, we weren't doing any of these kind of things that we ultimately end up doing. And uh, it was a great experience. Were you his tour manager for, was it two years or was it longer than that? From from 71 to 75. Okay. And then I know the first game for the Southern Heritage Classic from what I saw was in 90, right? Yes. So what did you do between 75 and 90? Is this when you started producing and creating entertainment concerts and festivals? Yeah, I mean, I, got, like I, mean I, I was all over the place. I mean, I, but I was in a... If you look at my career, I happened to be at the right place at the right time for some whatever reason. Uh, in 77 and 78, I produced 80 plus concerts over two years for the group called the Isley Brothers. And I was with them at the time that they were really, they've always been standard bearers and what have you, but during that time, they were really, you know, they were really hot. I mean, really big, and I did all of those. And I'm very fortunate enough to get into that situation. And I can say this now, that was my best experience of 50 years of being in entertainment business because we had control. 
It was the Ivy brothers and me. We went to play places and did things. We went to Hawaii to play. We went to Albuquerque to play. We went to Huntington, West Virginia to play. We went to Huntsville, Alabama. We went to Madison Square Garden to the Forum in LA. Places torn down now called the Sportatorium in Southern Florida. We were all over the place and we controlled everything. Everything that we did that wasn't an agent, a manager, or whatever is the Ida Brothers and Fred Jones. And I've never had that experience like that. And then uh, later on, I did shows uh, at the uh, place called the Hilton Hotel, which is right at the corner of Democrat and Airways. Uh, we were doing shows there, Lou Rawls, Nancy Wilson, Ray Charles, Tina Turner, Count Basie, Billy Eckstein, B.B. King, John Davidson, Phyllis Diller, just to name it. Oh, yeah, Bill Cosby. I did a whole series of shows there, you know, and I kind of just backed into that one because the guy who was the owner of the hotel liked to do shows and thought it was great, but he didn't know how to do it. And I told him I knew what I was doing and which I kind of fudged a little bit. But, <laughs> but uh, ironically, the first show was Lou Rawls and Nancy Wilson. We did eight shows there, the 1100 Cedar sold out all eight of them in advance. So sometimes, you know, you just get lucky, and I got lucky then. So can you talk a little bit, because I think there's lessons here for any listener. You, talk, you said that your favorite experience or memory producing shows, leading, leading tours, et cetera, was with the Osley brothers. And you talked about control. What do you mean by that? What made you enjoy from a management perspective, the controls that you had with the Osley brothers that you didn't have with Isaac Hayes or that tour? Well, it wasn't so much Isaac. It's the, the whole 50 years of being associated with the business. I got to go back and Isaac. We were, I was, I'm just put it on me. I was trying to find my way of what this really looked like. I mean, what I what I was doing. I was picking up money every day, and I was had to account for all of that and what have you. But with the Isaac brothers, okay, going back to Isaac. I mean, that was a a manager. I mean, that was I'm sorry, that was a an agent, and everybody had different ideas of what they wanted to do what it should look like. But when I got with the Isaac brothers, it was like the Isaac brothers, we would decide, especially uh, O'Kelly, the older brother, this is what we're going to do. I remember the first, the, the first eight shows we had with the Isaac brothers when I got with them in 77, the first eight shows sold out. But we had one show in particular, I remember, was in Jacksonville, Florida. And I called Kelly about four days before the show and said, Kelly, I just want to let you know that this, and I'm scared to death now because I just got with him. You know, this, this is the beginning, of the beginning of this relationship. I said, the show is not selling well. I want to let you know. And we only had sold minimum tickets. And he said, you know what? We decided that we was going to go this route. We're going to do this together. We're going to do the show. Well, a phenomenal thing happened and something in this business called Walk Up, which people come in at the last minute and buy tickets the day of the show or the evening of the show. 
we had so many people at that show that we had to sell tickets in waves. We let a few hundred people in, buy tickets, they go in the show, a few hundred other people come back. So when I said about having control, when I called Kelly and say, you know, this is what the situation is, she said, look, we in this together, we're gonna go, we're gonna play it out. And and that happened, we never would have played Charleston, I mean, I'm sorry, Huntington, West Virginia. We never would have played Albuquerque, places like that. I mean, you play all of the, the Houston's and the Dallas's and Chicago's and Atlanta's and all that. But that was a degree of freedom where you didn't have to worry about what some agent or manager thought about. It was just the decision-making was Isaac Brothers, Fred Jones, more or less Isley Brothers, more than me, but I was the one that's carried all out. I remember when they went to play the show and did a set up a show to go to Hawaii the first time. I didn't even go because I had these other shows that I had to promote and I couldn't afford to go way to Hawaii. Not as easy to do shows like we're doing this interview today. That wasn't in 77. All of this stuff that we take for granted wasn't even around. Even when I started the Classic in 1990, the internet and social media and all that was was not a, was not around. So that's what I meant when, about having that degree of freedom and support. You know, it's always good to say somebody supports you and say, "Okay, we in this together. Whatever happened, you know, and don't worry about it." It wasn't like I was going to say, "Oh my God, what has Fred gotten us into? He don't know what he's doing." I, I thought he knew what he was doing. None of that even came into the conversation. Again, that was a historical moment that I've never been able to experience since then. It sounds like the way you've been, you've always had a learning mindset. You've always, nobody's ever got it all figured out. It sounds like y'all had very clear communication. There was a lot of trust. You know, you knew more after the second year and the third year than you did the first year or the second year. And that's probably, it sounds like still the way you're living today and you took advantage of these opportunities. And when things were not right or things were not going well, y'all still were decisive and continued on the path that y'all had set. And so it sounds like there's just this theme already where we're at in our discussion today that you had these opportunities come your way in hindsight, you know, you can't plan or orchestrate you getting moved to, to be the banker close to stacks. Then you get these opportunities and then one thing leads to the next and you just stay the course and you say, you stay persistent and you just keep kind of moving forward and keep learning and keep growing. And obviously we're not even close to covering everything that you've accomplished or done that theme is just very clear from what you're sharing. Well, I mean, that's kind of, it may be opportunistic, but some of the things that I've gotten into, uh, the classic being one, uh, you know, one of the original owners of the Memphis Grizzlies was two, the Hilton Hotel series, the Island Brothers series, the Isaac Hayes series, the banks. I mean, it's all, was an opportunity. And that's why I try to share with, with, with people to be, to take advantage of the opportunity. Sometimes that window open, 
and that window closed, especially you know if you don't take opportunity at the moment. When my I would talk to my father about after I had gone to the bank and did that interview, and I told him what happened, and I said I had an opportunity. Just think about it. I'm having an opportunity to that you're gonna work in a somewhat stable environment, a situation with the bank, or you don't go and work for an entertainer and you don't know what's going to happen. But my father said, well, take that chance. It might be a better opportunity. You get a chance to travel, you get a chance to meet people, maybe there are other opportunities that that'll come about out of it. And he was right. You just never know and you know whether it was you know trying to get the Memphis Grizzlies when when they were when that that would have been the first major league franchise in Memphis, uh, the classic to, to try to do something in a way that hadn't been done before. Going back to the Hilton, he was doing shows. I said I can do it. I did. Got something about the classic that I'd love to hear you talk about. It, it was at the very beginning. But you said, early on, you said there was a kind of skepticism. The biggest thing of getting started was having people believe in it, that it was going to be an event. And so, and then also have another quote that you shared. You said, you knew it would be work convincing others. And that was another matter. So I'm curious, when you had this vision, this dream of the classic, what was that like in the early days when you when you had this vision, when you had this dream and you saw what it could be, but it didn't exist and you had to just start from the ground up and sell people on it and build it? Can you talk about the early days of that and then what you were experiencing emotionally or or what you were envisioning and how you got traction and how you convinced others? Can you talk about that? <laughs> The idea for the classic goes back five years before the classic. I, I was wanting to produce a music festival in Memphis. I was going to call it the Southern Heritage Festival. And I had been going down to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival in New Orleans for five years just to see what they were doing, how they were doing and doing a lot of research and all that as much as I could. Going back again, back during that time, there was no Google. So kind of had to do research, talking to people and what have you. <laughs> and, oh, and I the hard way. Yeah. And I couldn't get any traction uh, for that idea. Going back a little bit historically, doing classics have been around for a long time. The historically black school, the HBCUs were doing classics. Most of them are in rural places or small towns. And they were, they were a way for them to promote themselves in a bigger city. And they were doing them in places like Atlanta, like Indianapolis, Florida, Birmingham, New Orleans, uh, Dallas. And I thought that we could do that in Memphis. And the strange thing that happened was people were fully aware, the general public was fully aware that these games had gone on in other places, but their mindset was it could never happen in Memphis. My mindset was I wanted to prove that I could do something in addition to the entertainment piece or take that and make that a a part of a bigger event. And I wanted to prove that I can do it in Memphis. Why were they saying that it could never happen in Memphis? 
Because Memphis is, they say that about everything. They say that about the Grizzlies. That was the biggest fight that we had. The battle uphill that's convinced people that we could pull this off in Memphis. I mean, it was, and it's always been that thing. You know, you can see things happening in other cities, but never in Memphis. That's the mindset with people. It's been since I was a little kid, all my years of traveling. And the strange thing is, I mentioned that, is I'm traveling around the country. I'm, I'm everywhere. I would meet people in other cities that were very successful. They would say, oh, you know, Sam Cates, uh, he, 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 he's from Memphis. He might be in Los Angeles or Chicago or what have you. And you get a chance to talk to him, and they would say, I don't think I could be, I could have been successful. I had a successful career if I had stayed in Memphis. That is plenty shortcomings. And one of the things that we still grappling with in 2020, Dr. King got killed in Memphis. So the dream got, you know, in some way is this kind of continue to perpetuate this notion that you cannot be successful in Memphis. And so when I was talking about the classic, it was, yeah, we know this, we know about the Bayou Classic. There'd be busloads of people that would leave Memphis every year going to New Orleans. But they would go in hotels and food and all of that stuff that they would enjoy about it around the game. But they never felt early on that we could that we could do something in Memphis. And it's because of that mindset. I didn't start it. It's been around a long time and it's just kind of unfortunate, but that's how people play it. And you have to kind of work through that systematically. This is going to be different. This is going to work. Oh, well. And then what happened is that people just kind of looked at me and said, oh, well, if this guy wants to do it, you know, although I don't think it's going to work, have at it. You know, that's kind of just stayed out of my way for a long time. So I've read a quote from you where you said, your dream was to always do something like this in your hometown, and that's the hardest part. So I guess what you're saying here is that with the negative mindset, with the glass half empty, just thought process and help a lot of people communicate and always think about why something can't get done. By this point, you had traveled all around the country. You had put on tours and you had, you had run operations for the most, some of the most well-known entertainers in the world. But there was something deeper to you that made you want to endure the negativity or made you want to create the hope and the vision and the optimism before anyone else really saw it or believed in it. But there was something inside of you that you wanted to push through and create. And I guess that's why you said before that it would be difficult to do this in your own town. Am I getting that right? Well, what happened is that, and there's a passion in the Bible, and I I know I'm not going to quote it right. The essence of it is that the toughest part for a, a person to get recognition is in your hometown. Yeah, let's talk about Jesus. Yeah, I mean, a, in your a prophet, hometown, prophet in your hometown, he yeah, quite a bit, it, I think. It's, it's very difficult, and it's true. I mean, it, it plays out all the time. You know, people having issues, and, and, and from their hometown, it's, 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 it's incredibly difficult. Me being from Memphis, hometown guy, graduated from high school and went to 12 years of 
Memphis City Schools and University of Memphis and working at the bank and going back even further, way back when I had a paper route with the press seminar. I mean, I grew up here. I, I, I you know, I, and, and people knew, knew that. And even my parents were, you know, was kind of skeptical about me staying here because they felt that same pushback that I would get the same pushback. But it's tough for somebody in their hometown. And most of the people, you know, that have, that are really super successful are weren't from here. They've done things in here, okay? Uh, by the same token, Pitt High is from Memphis. There are a lot of other people that have been, you know, super successful, but in Memphis, but homegrown talent has been it's been difficult. That's what I was having to overcome, you know. It's a good idea. We think it could work, but we don't think it could work in Memphis. Not the way that you talk about. Yeah. When you talk about where you were at the bank with Stacks, where you are with these entertainers, where you are with this vision and the perseverance to, to push through all these things, do you feel like is that something that you just decided or do you believe in a higher power, say God or any religion that kind of gave you, do you feel like that gave you a deeper purpose or do you feel like that was just a choice that you made? to go after it? You know, there's so many influences. Again, 20, looking back, 20, looking back on this, 2020 is always 100%. So do what I have faith in, whether I'm going to work with Isaac or any of these other things or get down to the classic art or get down to the Grizzlies. I don't think that it was divine direction but you, but it had to have faith. If you don't have faith, you can't do what what I've done. I've been able to accomplish. Uh, I, I've been able to to stay one ahead, one step ahead of disaster because of faith, and 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 I was good doing something. And let's think about this now. I was doing something that was uh, thinking about it that was constructed for me and it turned out to be for my family, it turned out to be for for the community. So if you didn't have the faith and the belief and the trust you know, that God would have with all of this, you couldn't, you look back, how, how did I manage to survive all these storms, all these disasters, all, this, all of these things? And, and the other part of it too, the people in the community, in a way, believe that I should be doing something. I could be doing something, and encourage me. You know, when I when I fail in college, you know, my parents and other people are saying, "Well, you know, just keep trying, keep at it, keep." You know, so you have to have faith in God in order to do what you're doing. Because sometimes, you know, it can be, it can be the day could be. There's pretty sun shining, and uh, on the flip side of that is just darkness, and, and you got to believe in something. What do you think about music, entertainment, confidence, you know, creativity, you know, being, being a man of vision? What do you think about you uniquely in the way that you are interested you to take on these opportunities and then to learn, obviously, to have the gifts and skill sets, ability to manage money, but then to manage tours and productions of 
you know, entertainers, but then to bring it all together to, to create a community wide, more than a community, a, you know, regionally and nationally recognized event that combined culture, uh, tradition, history, music, football, sports, food, drink, et cetera. What is it about you that gave you the passion and the interest to bring all those things together to really, to make this successful? There's two parts of that. One of the things that was a, a blessing for me is that the being able to travel and to see other situations in other cities around the country. One in particular was uh, in New Orleans, a social aid and pleasure club called Zulus. If you, if you think about Mardi Gras, if you think about the most prized throw, they don't throw them anymore. It's the coconut, people in, in, in black face and what have you. But I got really close to them to see how significant an event plays into a community, an organization plays in the community. Now, they're way over 100 years old, but I saw firsthand the passion that when the Zulus are doing something, especially their ball, especially the parade, they created the London Gras Festival. And I was right there when all of that was the London Brown Festival was created to see how that can impact. And I would always stand at the, in the convention center as we were doing the event and say, man, I want to do this in Memphis. I was always skeptical that you wouldn't have the same passion that they had. But then again, they have over 100 years of that. They've had something that they work from. But the, the point I'm making is that I watched that closely and wanted to replicate that some kind of way in Memphis and to get over the, the negativity of, of you can't do it. And fast forward, last year, which was 2019, we had an event at Graceland, Black Tie, very elegant event, but people came together in a very special way. They didn't even want to leave to go home. It was this. But that reminded me of Zulu and the Zulu ball, how people had that kind of passion. Now, that was 30 years in with the classic, you know, that you have that kind of passion. But you knew that if you could get it right and that we could stay the course, that we could get there. But you can't, you can't promote or buy passion for, for something. If the community don't want it, you can't buy it. You can't, you can't fake it. You can't, whatever. You, you just can't. It just doesn't happen. So over time, it, it has taken this, you know, with the pattern, with the classic, it has taken its own course. We finally get it on a, on a, a track that's like what I saw with the, with the Zulus in, in, in New Orleans. Uh, and i tell you this quick story. I got a bunch of stories, but on the Zulus, and that's when I knew that what this really meant. We were staying at the High Regency when we went there, and right there by the dome, Superdome, during Katrina, it blew out all the windows and all that. We were staying there, and one of the guys, young kids, was uh, working at the hotel, and I was telling them I was there for the for Mardi Gras, and I was there for the Zulu, the Zulu ball, and he said, man, I've never been. And at that time, it was all invitational only. You, only, you can only go by invitation. I said, do you want to go? Yeah, of course I want to go. I mean, everybody <laughs> wants to go to the ball. I said, I'll, I'll see what I can do. 
So I got him a couple of invitations to the ball. He went, he took his mother, and he, and then he was telling me the story, but he started crying. He said he never felt that good ever in his life. And my mother was happy, and, and that's when you knew that the ball or the what was happening was something special in the cultural life of New Orleans. You just hope that you could do something that could that have that kind of impact. And I watched him and I was guided. I mean, I'm that emotional too. I mean, yeah, he, he was crying because he had a chance to go to something that in his hometown that never happened before. You was trying to get there, but you can't manufacture it. You know, and you just have to just keep stay the course and and we've been able to do that. Do you think that because of the classic and its success, that it is the most important event to the city that has rekindled or provided optimism and hope for a lot of Memphians that thought it died after Dr. King was assassinated? Unfortunately, Dr. King's assassination in Memphis, it's an ongoing process. You know, you hear people saying, it's unfortunate that Dr. King got killed, but they wish that it hadn't happened in Memphis. With all the, you go back in history, there are a lot of things that, that have happened to people, especially uh, black people in Memphis, where they either had to, they had to move out of town or they was had to move or the house got burned down or, or whatever. But this was an opportunity with the classic to shine where people could step forward. I say to people all the time, the attitude that a good many people in Memphis have doing the classic, you wish they could have it every weekend or every day in this community. It's a tremendous feeling. People backs are straight and the smiles are wider and the families are getting together and all of that kind of thing and, and all of this was because of this event. That's something that's, you know, that money doesn't doesn't buy. You can't buy that. And that's just passion. And the, and you show it show with the undershadow of a doubt, in spite of all the things that we had to encounter with just that event, that we've been able to keep it at a higher level. You have to understand whether it's the classic, whether it's Memphis and May, whether it's the Grizzlies, University of Memphis, football, basketball, basketball in particular. I think that negativity that people in Memphis have about themselves, they want the Memphians, we as Memphians want that to subside. You know, we can't be defined by that. In spite of all the things I said, all the difficulties that I may have encountered and along the way with the classic, it is still successful. And people in Memphis are proud of that, you know, because they can point to the success of the classic in Memphis. That's something that they can forever be proud of. What advice do you have or what thoughts do you have to continue to break or eliminate the negativity and the pessimism here in the Memphis community? And where would you like to see the classic 20 years from now? I answer the first question, last question first. I don't know where that's going to go. It's, I think that COVID-19, we're dealing with something that we don't know where things are going to go, or how, or what's going to happen, and what's going to be on the other side. 
hopefully the classic will be able to survive, but only time will tell what that's going to look like on the other side of this. What was your first question? I'm sorry. What advice do you have or what are your thoughts on what we can do here in Memphis to break or eliminate the negativity and the pessimism that you've talked about, that you've pushed through? Well, I think the biggest thing is that we need to do more for people in the community. We, we should be able to enhance it more. What I mean by that is that we, we spend a lot of time trying to be impressive. That, you know, we, if you saw something in St. Louis or you saw something in Chicago, it should work in Memphis. So sometimes you come up with this idea and somebody might like it, but in most cases, more people don't like it and you got to spend time trying to convince them. My thing with the classic was, I'll be here next year. I'll be, and, I'll, and, and I still want to give you uh, things that, that make you happy. A good football game makes everybody happy. Battle of the bands, halftime makes everybody happy. When we started the classic, there was no tailgating. Tailgating has got to be a phenomenal over the last five or six years, West Coast National, where people are tailgating for everything. We had a fashion show, which this year in 2020 be celebrating 30 years. So we've given people what they wanted and then tried to enhance those experiences as we went along. Not trying to come up with something that because it worked someplace else, we'll assume that it shouldn't work here. So we'll move in all kinds of directions, trying to almost like be impressive, but the thing that will make it Memphis, I think, a better place is that we need to do more to help people in their daily lives and get them something that they can handle. They can handle the classic. It's not a stretch. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, that we got to call on whomever. It's like my friends and I want to be a part of the classic. We can do that. We can enjoy ourselves and, and be a part of something in our hometown. And you can't ever forget or diminish the fact that everybody wants to do or have something successful in their hometown. Everybody, whether you attend it or not. People that live in Arlington or Germantown or Carrieville are impressed with the classic because it is successful in our hometown. In spite of all the things, all the things, I mean, some of the things can't even talk about now. We don't have the time to talk about. But it doesn't matter. It's 31 years in 2020, and we're facing something that's bigger than whatever has happened in the past called COVID-19. I mean, it's affecting everything. Everything I just named earlier is being adversely affected by COVID-19. Right now in this season, you've gone through so much, you've endured so much, you've endured things that were uncertain, or you've endured things that you didn't know kind of what the outcome's going to be. What have you learned, and how do you apply that right now with the Classic? Obviously, with the Classic, you've got two universities. You don't know what those universities are going to feel comfortable with. You've got this stadium. They haven't really finalized or had a you know, communicated a clear plan on what stadium regulations are going to be. You've got a golf tournament. You've got a beauty pageant. You've got 
tailgating, et cetera. Like there's so much unknown and there's so many moving parts. You know, we could just go into a podcast alone about all the preparation and all the work and all the time. So there's so much ambiguity right now, but what have you learned to give you peace amidst all the unknown? And then from a leadership perspective, what have you learned and how are you applying that today to stay the course? Two things. One is to be patient. You know, just just to be patient. And two is to be objective. I don't inject my personal feelings into the decision-making that I have to make. I, I to get all of the information. I've, I've started early on this year on the outset of COVID-19, gathering information to make an objective decision when the time comes. And like you said, you got the schools, you got the city, you got the county, you got the state, you got the national, you got the NC2A, uh, a federal government, I mean, you know, all of these are play a factor. But what I'm doing is to try to be objective, take the information and use it objectively and, and, and to try to make a decision. And unfortunately, that decision hasn't been made by uh, energy entities because just in Memphis and Shelby County, they have a, a three-phase plan just started uh, plan two a week ago for, 14, for 21 days. Then they'll go to plan three. And guess what? Entertainment and sports events are at the bottom of phase three. So you're already into July. That's what I'm saying, trying to be patient, trying to, you know, not to inject, oh my God, we've been doing this for 30 years, man. They ought to let us do this and that and the other. And, you know, why they don't make a decision or whatever the case might be. You just, okay, go wait this out. And, uh, and then try to make an intelligent decision, not only for the event, but for the community. You know, you have to understand and sometimes I think people are not understanding this. Whatever decision that you make is not just decision just for me. There are thousands and thousands of people that are going to be affected by whatever decision that are made in the name of the Southern Heritage Classic. So you have to keep that in, you know, you have to keep that in mind and, and not get too ahead of yourself. And I was reading something this morning and it's saying, well, you know, September is in the fall, where early September is still in the summer. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the fall doesn't start to the 22nd or 23rd or something of September. So there are a lot of decisions that have to be made, but I'm just trying to have patience, uh, trying to keep my health, trying to keep myself healthy and safe, and then try to be used objective with all the information that I have uh, to make a, a, an intelligent and informed decision. How do you handle donations, fundraising, et cetera? I know that I've read where the Southern Heritage Classic has a $21 million impact on the city of Memphis. I've also read that Tennessee State, Jackson State, Grambling State, Mississippi Valley State, they've earned a combined close to $12 million just through the years 1990 to 2017. I know that you've got your organization that obviously runs and executes the Southern Heritage, but, and, and I know FedEx is a, has been 
and I guess still is the the title sponsor, but with so much unknown, how do you think about nurturing and maintaining the relationships from a fundraising standpoint? Because if you just do a hard stop on stuff, there's no way that the event could go on if things are open back up per usual, but then you also don't know. So how do you, from a leadership standpoint, how do you think about those decisions and how are you handling that right now? Well, it goes back to what, <laughs> to what I just said. You have to be patient. You have to be objective. You know, you have to gather all this information. And uh, again, the community environment, the sponsor environment, the school environment, all of that is going to play a part. And, and, and I really don't control any, uh, any of that, any aspect of it. And, but I have to be patient. I can't, I can't move up two weeks from now to this afternoon. It all has to play out. And so I got to be patient enough to allow that to happen. Now, what happens on the other side of this, that's going to be the real test, not only for me as an event, but a lot of small businesses in particular are having to go through that. And, 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 and for the Classic in 2018, the weather, we had to cancel the football game 15 minutes. Well, we, the lightning came 15 minutes before the start of the game. We didn't play the game. That was a tremendous financial hit. And depending on what happens this year, we have to we have to wait it out, weigh it out. So that's what I'm saying. We have to be objective and patient to see how things go. And you hit a good on a very good point. You know, you know, how, how you know what are you gonna do? And I'm trying not to get way in the future of this. I'm not trying to get on the other side. I'm not trying to get in the fall. I'm not, I'm not trying to get there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm, I'm here. What happens the, the, the latter part of this week and the next week and the next week to try to figure all of this out. And it's so volatile that it changes every day. So what I might see today, tomorrow, it can be another consideration. And everybody's trying to work it out and I got to wait until it's worked out. There's this amazing theme that through all these interviews I've done and you've touched on it every step of it so far, but a, you know, regardless of how your first college experience went, you went back and you finished and you worked hard and you just, you grinded it out. B, it doesn't make sense just based off the way that you described it. You know, the bank, they hired you the first time, second time, you know, they weren't, they didn't follow up with you, but then this opportunity became available with Isaac Hayes. And, you know, at that point you had, you had done auditing, but there was so much that you didn't know, but you just, you went for it with the opportunity and you figured it out. And, you know, you didn't say this directly, but I mean, you can hear it by the by all the things that you shared. It's not like you make every right decision. Not everything's perfect, but you know they trusted you. You man, you ran their operations the best way that you could, and then and you were always learning. And then you went on with the Osley brothers, and you talked about. It sounded like you had more confidence to tell them what you thought was needed, and then y'all had trust within y'all's relationship. And that was one of the reasons from what it sounded that that was a successful relationship and some of the things that you had there with the Osley brothers. 
you had just learned after, you know, being with Isaac Hayes. And then you take on with the hotel downtown and those events and you're still learning, but in all this experience is just cum- accumulating. And, you know, then obviously you start the classic and you had this purpose, you had this vision, you had, you had traveled the country, you had seen all these other events, you had grown up, you know, you experienced the time when Martin Luther King was assassinated. You had this vision of culture, of progress. You were able to persevere through the naysayers. And then you launched the classic and it's incredibly successful. And then, you know, even just skipping forward, we're all the way here to today. And now you're facing something that nobody knows exactly how to handle it. Nobody knows what the, what the exact outcome's going to be, but you're talking about being patient. It, you know, there's lessons here from what you're saying about having peace in the unknown and, and you're taking it a day at a time. And I think it's just a wonderful, these are just wonderful interviews and your interview is just, is such a gift to any listener because oftentimes we, you know, we, we struggle with stuff or we're worrying about the future or we're trying to figure out what it is that we really believe in, you know, to work hard, et cetera. But there's no perfect plan. And it's like, just keep showing up each day and trying to do the best you can and make the most of it. And then to some degree, it sounds like in some form or fashion, you'll look back like on the way that you've reflected on your career and by, and by taking each day at a time and trying to and do the best you can, it'll add up and, it, and it's going to make sense with hindsight 2020, but it, it's not that way on the front end. And, and here you are after, you know, having the classic for, you know, 30 years and now you're dealing with something again and then, and, but you're teaching and communicating the lessons and the principles that, you know, you've learned throughout your career and it's just another iteration of it. Well, again, um, it's, it's strange as it might seem what's happening with COVID-19 as relates to me and personally and the classic and my business. I've been down this road before and we t- touched on it earlier. That's why if you don't have faith and you don't have belief then that, that you can work through these, you know, these situations. You've been there before. You just ask for, in your daily prayer, just ask for just some guidance, some, you know, just some guidance to, for to make the best decision that you can make. And you make decisions and things don't always work out. You don't say, oh my God, I mean, that's, I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I try to do the best I can and then hopefully that everything will work out. And if it doesn't, it'll leave me in a place where I can figure it out even then. Unfortunately, with COVID-19, you can't figure it out because you're going through something right now and then there's going to be a second wave uh, again and, and going back and historically with these pandemics, they have two or three waves of it. You know, and it just doesn't just automatically go away. So that's why I'm saying just be patient and be objective and then follow that lead in terms of what you have to do. But again, I've seen some of this before, you know, call it 9-11, call it Katrina. I've had concerts where storms have come up and seem like out of nowhere and 
we had a concert down at the Lander Center. Storm came up in the afternoon, knocked out all the power. The power in the area comes back. But guess what, what venue did come back? The Lander Center. <laughs> <laughs> so we can't do the show. We got to matter get a generator because the show was going to Dallas the next day and they had to rent a generator just to get the show out of the building because there was no power in the building. So you face tough time before, you know, you don't like it, but you just have to have trust and faith and, 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 and what you're doing, you know, that you're going to make the best decision that you can make and, and, and move on. So, you can't make the decision when you don't have all the information. You know, you know. Some people comment, "What, what, what are you going to do, Fred?" I, there are a lot of more steps above, as they use this term today, pay grade, to make a decision that's going to impact me, and then I'll figure it out from there. Because it won't be the first time I had to figure out something. <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, going back to the Ida brothers. I mean, they made a decision. Show not going well, man. I just want to let you know that that was the first step to let Kelly know that the show wasn't going well. Well, the first eight shows we did sold out and Jacksonville was one of the one of the eight. <laughs> Four days before, it looks like a total disaster. So I'm saying somewhere along the way, even with this, if we start making rational, objective decisions about what we have to work with and Every day, unfortunately, I hear about somebody that I've known very well for many years that passed that passed away during this during this during this time. Wow. So it's all real. It's not. This is not something that affects them or y'all. It affects me and the people that I know, and so. And then again, it just pushes me to make truly objective decisions and be patient about what I'm doing and what I'm hearing, you know, and before I, I move forward. And that's with anything. I'm not, I'm not quick to, to jump on the proverbial bandwagon. You know, I'm going to try to think it out, ask questions. And as I tell kids all the time, when I started the classic, you know, there was no internet. There was no Google, okay? Even if you can't spell the word, you can put in part of the, 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 the lettering and it'll spell it for you. And, and, and whatever you're searching, that'll give you an answer. So I've been able you know, to work through stuff you know, for a long time and I will continue to work through this as we move forward. Yes, sir. I got, I got one question real quick and then I got a question to end on. My first question, I meant to ask you this earlier, but you talked about when you called one of the brothers with the Isley brothers and told them this was not going well, but then y'all sold it out because of walk-ups. What did you do or how did you, how did you execute that? How did you make that happen? What did you do to create all those people to walk up and, and then where you sold out those concerts? How'd you handle that? Well, it's two different things. I might have two different situations. One is that we had total belief in the process and he had total belief in me. This is what we're going to do. We say we was going to get into it. So this is what, so we're going to stick to the state of course. 
then that's what you need, especially when things are ongoing right. You need someone to steady the course and go forward there. Now, getting back to the classic, and, and sometimes it gets into a lot of things, get into race relations in Memphis. I went to see a guy at the Commercial Appeal in late fall of, of uh, 89 named Dave Swearingen. And after I had they arranged a meeting for me to meet him, and I described to him what I thought my vision of what this can become. Dave said to me that day, if you pull this off, you will have the biggest event in this town. Dave did from the latter part, from the, from the time I started the classic till he passed away. And even after his passing, he left me in a good position. And Dave was a white person. And people kind of believe, coming, especially coming in Memphis and what I just, we, I've all gone, gone through, that someone would step up, the brochure that I have today, the game program that I had today, the logo, some of the logos that I've gone through and gone through time and time again. All of that was with Dave Swearingen believing in me and gave me the support. And a lot of times, the support is worth more than the money. Okay, if Kelly Ivey had said, and represent the Ida brother, I don't think you know what you're doing. If Dave Swearingen had said, I don't think that this could work and not put forth in the effort to really help me, he didn't say, here's, here's a whole bunch of money, but whenever I needed him, he was always there. And here it is 30, 31 years later, I, one of the guys that he put me with said, look, I'm not going to be here forever. This guy can help you. This guy's still with me. You know, when people believe in it and the right person believe in it and you and what you're doing, that is worth a lot more money to you because you don't have to worry about, I wonder if they're going to change their mind. I wonder if the support is going to be there. The Ida brothers never wavered. Dave Swearingen never wavered. And Fred Jones is the benefactor from that all these many years. That is so good. That is so good. Last question I have, unless there's anything else you want to share, what advice have you given either people you've mentored, your children, your friends? What advice have you given them about finding work? where they're passionate about it. Not everybody can be Fred Jones. Not everybody can start the Southern Heritage Classic. But, I mean, there's a lot of other companies or events that can be started. And then there's also a need for teams to be committed and passionate about the cause. So what advice have you given your children or others about finding something that they believe in strong enough to where they're going to endure all the unknowns and setbacks and things that, that you've dealt with. You, you just described it. It's going to be just find the, what you are passionate. I was passionate about creating an event and that event in Memphis became the Southern Heritage Classic. Find whatever your passion is. And today there's no excuse to not to know. You have Google, you have all the social media, you can find whatever, I mean, the news every day, if you go to, you go to social media, you get all the news. 
So you have no reason not to know. And the thing about it, when you once you decide, say, look, I want to try to do this, whatever it might be, then go do the research, get as much information as you can, talk to people. And the one I can say that a hundred thousand times if I if I had the time to do it, talk to people. And, and and gather as much information or insight as you possibly can. It's like a passion with, with Julius Caesar, that a lowly soothsayer said, beware the eyes of March. He says, well, what do you know? You just a lowly soothsayer. We all know what happened after the end. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying that you can gather the information and insight on something that you that that you have passion for, and, and realize that it's a lot of work. There's going to be some shortcomings, and you can make the adjustments as you go along. But get as much information you can from all sources. And and sometimes I know for me, you know, I'm talking to people even about this year. I've been talking to people everywhere. This, what do you think? How do you think? How was how how this? Let's get the information. But in closing, I try to enc- always encourage people. I will never tell them what people told me that you will never be successful and you'll never be successful in Memphis. I will never tell somebody that. Never. I will share with them that it's very difficult. It's very challenging, and, and, and by the same token, if you execute your plan and people accept what you're doing, whatever it might be, then you can be very, very successful. But there's going to be some hard knocks. It does not come without hard knocks. I bet if you talk to Fred Smith about FedEx, the early days of FedEx, I'm sure he got some some stories that you wouldn't believe. You know how big worldwide FedEx has become to where he got started. So it's always a bump in the road, but you just have to be, uh, again, to be patient and execute your plan as best you can. And then when, when there's an obstacle, then make adjustments. Yes, sir. This has been a, just such a great conversation. So many lessons. Uh, thank you so much for just who you are and what you've done for our city. Thank you for all the wisdom that you've shared today and you've done it throughout your whole career and I just want to wish you and your family a happy Memorial Day and also I just want to say I thought it was a great it was very subtle but just how you talk about how you live with celebration and, and appreciation for our veterans and things like today you, you, you try to live that way every day so that was a nice subtle encouragement but I didn't want to overlook that as well well again you know I try I I, I, I I do that every day because I, I, this is a personal one and it might be a little little tough for some people. I, I got a call yesterday from a guy that I knew who was very supportive of me. He passed away and I had the opportunity to tell him how much I appreciated him. He was sick at the time, but it made both of us feel good that we could share the fact that I could say to him, I appreciate your supporting me and being there for me. And I just said that because you just never know. And when you have the opportunity to, to 
to say to someone, thank you, I appreciate you, we need to do it every day. Because we all have gotten into a, a, a case where, you know, you know, I'm going to call Sam. We'll send Sam a note. A week ago by. So in the moment, I try to stay in the moment as much as I possibly can to say to you, I appreciate you today. I appreciate the veterans today, you know, and not have to wait till next Memorial Day to say what I need to say each and every day when the opportunity comes about. Yes, sir. Thank you. My pleasure. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned at least one thing today that you can apply to your own life. If you like the show, please make sure and leave a review and be sure to tune in each week as I'll be releasing a new episode. Hope you have a great day.